Do you like having guests come and stay with you? Yeah, no, depends. Getting different reactions here, some like, some don't. It can be good, it can be um, fun, sometimes unexpected. Um, some, uh, some relatives came to stay with us once, who I didn't know very well, and I'd only ever really met in, in large um, groups, family groups and stuff. They're actually, actually relatives of Sue's. And I was, yeah, they're coming to stay, but I wasn't sure how much I would like. And they were some of those fun people I've ever had, we've ever had with us. And they were just wonderful. And I really enjoyed their stay. They, I was completely, well, surprised, I shouldn't say that. But it was, uh, it was really, really good. Not that I disliked them, but it was beforehand. Or I just didn't know what to expect. I just enjoyed it so much, them being with us. What about when people turn up unexpectedly, though? You know, someone just turns up on your doorstep that you know, and they've got their suitcase, and um, you've got no idea how long are they going to stay for. You've got no idea how long they're going to be. Is it going to be days? Weeks? Maybe months? We really don't know when these people are going to disappear. Well, the Old Testament hero that I mentioned that we were going to look at, it's not David. He's normally the one who gets picked from passages like that. It's somebody called Obed-Edom. You might not have um, heard of him much, but if you uh, look, at, look at the passage in 2 Samuel, you'll find that he's the person whose um, house the ark was left at. The, um, the ark of the covenant. God came to stay with him. God turned up unexpectedly on his doorstep and stayed for three months. Now, you might think I'm, I'm pushing it a bit, because after all, it was the ark, a representation of God, of God's presence, that stayed with him. Um, actually, I think I spoke about the ark last time I, I, I spoke. I think it was a morning service. Um, I found that interesting photo on the internet. I think it's a, obviously a recreation, not the original. But did, did you notice um, what the passage actually said about the ark? The ark of God which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark, the two angels on top of the ark. That's where Moses met God. It was the mercy seat where God spoke to man. They really viewed it. God is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. So although in one sense it was was just, just a symbol, in another they really did think of it as the presence of God. This was where... God was, where the ark was. And, and from the fact that Uzzah was killed when he touched it as well, uh, showing the holiness of God. The awes- the, something we can forget sometimes, the, the, the sheer holiness of God and his presence there. David, when Uzzah died... He was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was taking it from from where it was. I think it's Shiloh. Um, I might have got that wrong. But to Jerusalem, the the city that was now his capital. Um, He put up a tent for the ark and everything because it it lived in a tent, uh, the tabernacle originally. And they were bringing it there. And this man had been struck down. He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. You could paraphrase that to something like, 
good grief, this thing kills people. I'm not having it anywhere near me. Which is basically what David is saying. He'd forgotten just how holy God was and thought that he could just put him on the back of an ox cart and trundle him into town. When people carried the ark, rivers parted before them. People died when it was misused. It was carried with praises before armies and enemies were defeated because it was the presence of God. I'm not suggesting for a moment that God was limited to the ark, but that's how it was seen. So, what's David to do? How do you get rid of this thing that you're moving to your home that kills people, but you know he's holy and you don't want to be seen as well, how do you get rid of it? What do you do with it? You need to find somewhere close by. You don't want to move it too far after what's happened. Somewhere that, well, it, it's got to be trusted because, well, it is holy after all. Somewhere that, well, let's be honest, people are expendable. Obed-Edom fitted the bill. David put it in the home of Obed-Edom. And how did he cope with it? What happened to him while it was in the house? What did Obed-Edom do? How did his life change because this, this thing was there? We don't have any details of that. We don't know how it changed. But we do know that he was blessed. He was blessed so much by the presence of God in his home that when David saw it, he took it back. It rained there three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. But as soon as David realised that actually it could be a blessing as well as killing people, he wanted it back. He wanted it near him. And he moved it properly this time. He'd learnt his lesson. He looked back at the um, the history of how it should be moved uh, and how it should be taken care of. But what about the changes to Obed-Edom? Did it have any long-term effect on him? Well, he's not a name that we recognise instantly from Scripture. But he does appear a few more times, in fact quite a few more times in the next few chapters. If you've got a Bible, you might like to look at this actually. We're going to skip from 2 Samuel to a parallel account in Chronicles 1 Chronicles 15, 1 to 4. That's page 418 in the, the Church Bibles. Chronicles tends to give... Um, the, the writer of Chronicles, which was written later than, than Samuel and uh, Kings, re- I say repeats, he covers the same period of history and he tells the same thing, but he's got much more of an interest in, in the priesthood and in the temple, and how things work there. And so he goes into far more detail about that sort of thing. And we read, if we look at, um, in chapter 15, after David had constructed buildings for himself in the city of David, he prepared a place for the ark of God, and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, 
because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. He'd learnt his lesson. David assembled all the Israelites, all, all Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to the place he had prepared for it. He called together the descendants of Aaron and the Levites. Now, it goes through quite a long list, and I'm not going to read this list. Sue, when she looked at the passage, she had to, to read, commented on one or two of the names in it, and you should see some in the next section. So I'm not going to read it, I'm going to skip it. But if we look at verse sort of 16 to 18, we see David took the leaders of the Levites and to, uh, sorry, he told them to appoint their brothers as singers to sing joyful songs accompanied by musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. And if you look down the people in the list, verse 18, who do we find? Third, uh, second from the end. Obed-Edom. Hey, he's a singer. He's a singer in the procession before the Lord. We can read on. Do you want to skip down to verse 21? The musicians, um, this is. And in verse 21 we have... And Obed-Edom again. Um, yeah, the magicians, Heman, Asaph, this is, sorry, verse 19. Musicians, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan were to sound the bronze cymbals. Zechariah, Isaiah. You can see why I didn't want to read this, can't you? Um, uh, others playing the lyres. And... Yep, it's somewhere it says that he plays the harp. And I, oh, there we are, in verse 21 itself. Um, we're to play the harps directed according to the Sheminith, whatever that is, um, including Obed-Edom, who's playing the harp. So he's a singer, he's a harpist. Verse 24. We're to blow the trumpets before the ark of God. Obed-Edom and Jehaniah were also to be the doorkeepers for the ark. He's a singer, he's a harpist, he's now a doorkeeper. Why don't you skip a chapter? Chapter 16, verses 4 to 5. David, was well, he, but David, appointed some of the Levites to minister before the Ark of the Lord. So this is an ongoing thing rather than just the move, uh, moving it to the temple. And who do we see in the middle of the list? Obed Edom. He's a minister, ministering before the ark, ministering before the Lord. I want to skip on a little bit further, verse 37 and 38. Again, he also left Obed-Edom and 68 associates to minister with them. They were gatekeepers. I'm not sure if that's different, actually, from... Um, a doorkeeper, could well be the same thing. But um, I'm not entirely sure how you do that with a tent either. Um, but it was obviously an important position that he had. Three months with God in his house, and he is everywhere. Obed-Edom is doing everything. He is so excited about God. This, this guy, he just wants to be in there with whatever God's going, doing, whatever's going on, he wants to be there. God has blessed him. And he's just, he wants to be involved in everything. Obed-Edom, 
worship leader, singer, harpist, procession leader, doorkeeper, temple attendant. And actually, if you want to skip through, it's only one verse, you might not want to, into um, 2 Chronicles 25-24, this is quite a long time later, it's on page 459, um, This is probably well after Obed-Edom has died, but it mentions him again. It says, um, someone is actually stealing the possessions um, from the temple after Israel has been conquered. 25-24, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong one. Um, He took all the gold and silver and all the articles found in the temple of God that had been in the care of Obed-Edom. So in the past... Obed-Edom had obviously been the custodian of the treasures of the temple as well. God had blessed this guy's little cotton socks off. He was just so excited about God. He wanted to bless God back in any way he could. Can you imagine him? He's running around, he's trying to do everything. And you know what's really, really amazing about this? It's who he was. Do you remember at the beginning, Obed-Edom, the Gittite? The Gittite. He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't even a Jew. He was a Philistine. Gittite is a Philistine. So what's it like when God comes visiting? John says... In the beginning of his gospel, in verse 14 of of John, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's how the gospel starts. And he made his dwelling among us. Made his dwelling is literally encamped or tabernacled. God put, up, God put up his tent in our backyard, is what that verse says. And the verse I read um, right at the beginning of the service, where in, in 1 John, John's saying, We've re- he was really here, we saw him, we touched him. God came and lived with us. Jesus' whole ministry is an example of God living with us. God actually being here. Think about God actually being right here, right in our lives. And at the end of his ministry, just before he's crucified, Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's praying for future believers. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me, and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. 
Jesus expresses God's desire to live together with us, for us to live together with him. In fact, there's an amazing verse in there, actually. Um, I'll go back a, a page. That they may be one as we are one. God, Jesus, praying to the Father, they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. There's something amazing. That's one of, I think that's one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. I can't begin to understand all that it implies. But it's almost Jesus saying that we have an invitation into the Trinity to be part of the Godhead. Now, I know we're not, not becoming God, but he's saying, I want them, as I am in you and you are in me, Jesus and the Father, I want them to be with us. I think that's, that's astounding. I can't, as I said, I can't begin to understand what that really means. But it hints at something amazing. God really wants to live with us. He wants us to be together with him. Jesus, and it doesn't end at the end of Jesus' ministry. Previously, a bit, a bit earlier, Jesus had said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. This is to the disciples. You know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit, who will live in us. He'll take up residence in us. Paul actually uses this, this thought, this amazing thought that God wants to live in us, in um, a discussion he's having with the Romans when he writes to them. Sorry, there are lots of scriptures here this evening, but they, they all talk about the same thing. Um, you, however, he's talking about the sinful nature and, and the new nature. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Now, primarily, he's talking about living properly in, in this passage, but the whole assumption behind his argument is about God living in us. And you see what I meant earlier about almost muddling the parts of the Trinity. Um, however, you are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... And the next sentence, but if Christ is in you, he's talking about Christ, the Spirit, and Christ. Later on, he says, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, that's the Father, the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. All of the Godhead mentioned, he almost muddles them as he talks in this this letter, you can see. God is, Jesus, sorry, Paul is talking about God living in us. 
It's true of all Christians. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not have, sorry, the Spirit of God, he does not belong to Christ, Paul says. Now, that could be read as being a very negative way around, but what he say, he just assumes that every single Christian has the Spirit of God in them. There's no argument about it. If you are a Christian, if you have come to Christ, Christ lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Father is in you. God takes up residence inside you. All who come to God and let him in. That's why Christianity is more than a religion. It's not a set of ways of doing things. It's not a doctrine. That's what makes the difference. God comes to live inside us. God really does change us. We don't change through learning to do things differently. We don't change primarily. All these things help, but we don't, that's not what the real change is. The real change is God coming to live in us. So, God wants to move in. God moves into our lives. Do you let him stay in the guest room? Nicely decorated, carefully separated. Maybe with an ensuite in the kitchen so he doesn't have to disturb the rest of the house too much. Or does he have full run of the house? Can he go where he likes? Is the fact that God lives in us just something that we, we know to be true or is it something that we experience? Like Obed-Edom. God came to stay. And it changed him so completely. A Philistine who suddenly wanted to serve God in as many ways as possible. He just got so excited about him. Do we just want to please him? It's not always like that for all Christians. It's probably not always like that for each of us. At times it's not like that for me. It doesn't seem like it. Jesus once wrote a letter to a church. In it he said, he's writing to Christians, this verse is often used to non-Christians, but he's writing to Christians. He said, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me in my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. There was no greater symbol of, of togetherness in Old Testament and New Testament times than sharing a meal. I will come in and eat with him and he with me. God still wants to move in. And he wants full run of the house. He wants to be able to walk around and really become a part of the family in that house, not just a guest who stays in a special room out the way. 